Welcome to It's All About Who You Know with host Craig Turner from Momento, the business growth agency. On our podcast, Craig interviews executives from chambers of commerce around the United States and Canada, tapping into their expertise on how to get the most value from your business associations, how their organizations are serving their members, and what's happening in their market for companies looking to grow there. Here's Craig Turner. Welcome to the It's All About Who You Know podcast brought to you by Momentum, the business growth agency. I'm Craig Turner, your host, and I'm looking forward to bringing you today's episode. You know, it was about four years ago that we sat down and sketched out a business model of helping companies get stronger return on their Chamber of Commerce investments. We knew it would fill a niche. We knew it would work. Those things were never in doubt, but I could never have envisioned how rewarding the work has been. Between the podcast, our consulting work, connections on LinkedIn, and through the member value programs we've created, we are talking to a lot of chambers right now. And every week we're meeting the most awesome people from all over the U.S. and Canada. It's an interesting dynamic because I suppose the hallmark of Chambers of Commerce is making connections within a community. But the network of chambers around the world is also a community, and it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know it. In fact, I'm very excited because for the first time on the podcast, we are headed all the way out west. My guest today is Andrew Hone, President and CEO for the Portland Business Alliance in Portland, Oregon. So, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be here. Now, we talk about connections. I was introduced to Andrew and the Portland Business Alliance through my colleague at World Trade Center Portland, who I connected with at a conference in New York in October. And talking to Andrew before we started today, the chamber is actually located in the World Trade Center in Portland. So it's funny how these connections happen, but I'm very happy that they do. So, Andrew, let me just start by giving everyone a quick formal intro, and then we can get to some conversation. Andrew Hone became the president and CEO of the Portland Business Alliance on June 18th, 2018. That's before COVID. So I'm sure we'll talk about the effects of the pandemic under Andrew's leadership. Prior to joining the Alliance, Andrew was president and CEO of the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce in New York. And before his tenure there, he worked in the office of the Brooklyn Borough President, where he directed capital spending and economic development policy. How Andrew ended up in New York was through participation in the National Service Year as an AmeriCorps VISTA member, helping indigent New Yorkers seek free civil legal help, and went on to develop corporate programming for the largest provider of homeless services in New York City, the Volunteers of America. Andrew has been an appointee to several agencies and authorities throughout his career, and in Portland has served on Mayor Ted Wheeler's Council of Economic Advisors. Metro Council President Lynn Peterson's Presidential Council, Multnomah County's Preschool for All Task Force, and co-chair of Commissioner Joanne Hardesty's Small Business Committee. Presently, he serves on the boards of directors of All Hands Raised, Black Business Association of Oregon, Cascadia Innovation Corridor, Greater Portland Incorporated, Oregon Business and Industry, Sports Oregon, Travel Portland, and is the treasurer of the Portland Economic Investment Corporation. That is a lot of hats. Seems to be a theme here on the podcast with the people that we're interviewing. So knowing how busy you are, we very much appreciate the time that you're spending with us. Andrew holds a Bachelor of Science in Economics from the University of Wisconsin and a Master of Urban Planning from New York University. He's a Milwaukee, Wisconsin native. His wife, Karina, is a doctor at the Portland Clinic, and they live with their sons, Theodore and Rocco, and their daughter, Aria, in southwest Portland. So, Andrew, let, let's just start with an intro to the Portland Business Alliance, which you called colloquially as the Alliance. Tell us a little bit about the organization and, you know, think about it from the perspective of New Year 2023. 
Sure. You know, like most large metropolitan chambers of commerce, uh, we're, a, we're, we're a special case. We're a three-in-one organization. We're the regional chamber of commerce with over 2,100 members. We're the downtown business improvement district, which is known as downtown Portland clean and safe. And here it's called an enhanced service district. And then through our charitable institute or our 501c3 related corporation, we also have an incredible program that focuses on diversity, equity, inclusion in the workplace called Partners in Diversity. So um, our organization sits at the crossroads of DE&I, downtown and business advocacy. And it's been quite a ride, as you can imagine, here in Portland. But that's that's who we are. And there are roughly 30 individuals that make up our organization, diverse group of people that have incredible talents and that I am proud and humbled to call colleagues. That's excellent. I was, that was going to be my question. How many people? Because you have there's a there's a lot of different roles you play there, and I love the I love the three in one model as we talk to chambers around the country. You mentioned the interesting things happening important. Let's talk a little bit about that. What from a from a chamber perspective, the business community's perspective, what kind of things are you working on right now? But give me both the opportunities and the challenges. Sure. You know, so as we were talking about before, just so your listeners know, we were asking why did I end up here and. Uh, you know, the as someone who grew up on what I call the fresh coast in Wisconsin and then lived on the East Coast and now live on the left coast, I have an interesting perspective, I think, about what makes each part of this nation so special, at least the Midwest, the East Coast, Northeast, and then the West Coast and the Pacific Northwest is a, is a special subset of that. So I, I was brought out here because my wife landed an incredible job out here. Uh, she's an incredibly talented surgeon and specializes in minimally invasive gynecology and it's just a pleasure to be able to, to hear from her about what medicine's been through over the last few years. But we came out here because of her and my predecessor had been in this role for nearly 14 years, was retiring at the time. And just, you know, things happen uh, when one door closes, many, many others open. And I was fortunate and uh, the board trusted me with with the keys to this car. And it's been a wild ride ever since. And, and I can genuinely say, as you can imagine, coming from Brooklyn, New York, which just by itself, Brooklyn, 2.7 plus million people would be the third or fourth largest city in America if it was its own city, which oftentimes it thinks it is, and I happen to believe in it, <laughs> to coming out here, same same region, same size metropolitan region. But you compare that to just the borough, and and we genuinely thought we were moving here for a quieter existence, you know, that, that, that politics here would be a little bit easier, and, you know, working on a, a growing economy like Portland's would be really exciting and interesting work. And, and that that was kind of true for the first uh, year or so. And then, <laughs> and then the pandemic hit and then national politics hit and then political violence started to happen on our streets. And we've had a run of natural disasters from historic wildfires that shut down the economy while we were still shut down from the pandemic, historic ice storms that, that also truly crippled our economy. So we've been through a lot. We were some of the first in and last out of the pandemic. And Portland was was at a crossroads uh, right before and and really questioning what it wanted to be when it grew up. And so all these things sort of conflated at the same time. And uh, I can say that this organization, that the uh, chamber I run, was in the middle of all of it. And so it has been both the hardest work that I've ever done some of the most rewarding and some of the saddest work as well, uh, because we've been dealing with so many crises unabated. And yet here we are still standing. So 
the long and short of that answer is that it has been a wild ride that coming out of New York would have never predicted it would be. And now a word from our sponsor. All right, this is a message for Chambers of Commerce. Serious question, are your affinity programs working? Let's break that down. What is success with an affinity program? We'd say that first and foremost, the program provides unique and tangible value for your members. That's the most important thing. Can you say that about your current programs? Second, your member value program should be on mission. Why? Because it'll make them so much easier to sell when you don't have to come out of left field during a member meeting. I'm guessing you're nodding your head with me because we've all seen these kinds of programs stop and start, hoping that the next one will bring the kind of non-dues revenue success as chamber health insurance. This disconnect is why we got into the member value program business, and we've got a good one for you. We call it Diligence Leads, and it was created in partnership with the data analytics firm Related Akofas Company. Diligence Leads brings the power of big data to your members, the kind of data that the biggest global players have been using for years, now making it accessible to companies of any size. Through Related's Diligence Portal, your members can have access to more than 125 million companies globally with easy-to-use search capabilities, state-of-the-art AI, and a team of data scientists to guide their way. In addition, all Chambers of Commerce that participate in the Diligence Leads program get their own subscription to the data, a customized prospecting list, and non-dues revenue potential. And you'll like this, there's very little work for you to do. We handle the transactions, we do the training, and we provide marketing content to support your program throughout the year. How's that sound? Now don't just take my word for it, I want you to check out the program and see what the power of big data can do for your chamber and for your members. And then set up a Zoom meeting with us so we can show you Diligence Leads live. Go to diligenceleads.com and let's talk. Now back to our program. Well, let me ask you this. So you said 2,100 members, right? That's now, right. A, lot of the, a lot of the chambers that have your model deal very well in advocacy and they deal very well in economic development, but they a lot of them don't have that many members. The members tend to be a specific subset. So everything that you just talked about that the chamber has to have a leadership role in, you also have to sustain yourself and keep these 2,100 members engaged and, and, and as members. How do you balance the two of these necessary regional initiatives that have to happen versus you know, the everyday chamber work of, of running networking events and things like that. How do, how do you, how do you balance that? Uh, well, I think fortunately I inherited an organization that was really unrivaled both in the region and the state in terms of its preeminence in the business community. Its voice was respected and it, it's because of a couple of things, you know, just, and this is not unfamiliar territory for a lot of folks out there that do business advocacy work, but our state chamber of commerce had gone through a lot of turmoil and a lot of reconfiguration. So there was a there was a time, there was a gap on statewide business issues that our organization filled in on. Our region is, you know, uh, oftentimes a, a really challenging one to advance business issues in a rational way because our politics here are so extreme that, you know, being in this job, has some job security because the business issues that we face uh, ultimately are are so frequent and so often that we need a strong chamber, regardless of whether it's me or anyone else who fills in the role. And so, 
every single year we're one of the top three in the state in terms of overall membership and that includes our statewide organizations we have a ceo council here as well and that includes them so you know the reality is we're, we're a big 10 chamber and we include a lot of services that i think people look to especially in these really hard times our downtown business improvement district are, has been delivering services when downtowns were effectively shut down and i think seeking the, that assistance created such a preeminence for the need of our organization that it was a 24 seven job. And in terms of balancing day to day activities, you know, we're it uh, for the way that businesses digest their news and information. Our reach from a media perspective is, is profound. I'll say this. And I think folks that are in the communications world will understand this, but last year, if you track our name and we do this using tools like Cision and Meltwater, uh, we were read by folks all over the world 4.2 billion times wow. in, in aggregate readership and in somewhere close to 120 different countries. And it's not because we're doing amazing work. It's because, well, I think we're doing amazing work. I shouldn't short, short sell us. But because Portland, Portland has become now a focal point for national and international attention. A lot of it bad, a lot of it good. But this has created a need for a voice. And I think we serve that, that specific role really, really well. And because of that, people look to us for the needs of connecting and networking and information gathering and promoting themselves and doing all the things that chambers traditionally do. They seek our, our platform to do it in because they know this is the place to be. And we've created a really good and strong sense of belonging. And right now, you know, my board is 92 members strong, with 22 of those being non-voting members that also add their voice. And it's both the largest and the smallest businesses in the region. And I think it creates a sense of place that in this region, in Portland, and I'm sure people can guess this, we've been through a lot of hard times. And so this has been a, a bit of a respite for the business community to come and have really strategic thinking and to gather and celebrate when we've gone through so much and we've kept a positive attitude. And I think part of it is how do you inspire others and encourage one another and pick each other up when they're down? And I think that's happened in this organization. That's fantastic. Speaking of doing amazing work, I want to uh, I want to talk about this. I pulled it off your website, actually, the news about the the the, the tax reform that was done towards the end of last year, because that seems like a, a game changer. Can you walk us through that a little bit, and maybe a little bit about the story of how it came to be? Yeah. So obviously, the Pacific Northwest and it should be no surprise is a very tax friendly uh, place to be. So we have the more or less highest effective income tax in the nation right here in Portland. So FYI, and that can be a trouble for recruiting and for businesses that are trying to keep and expand their employee base. Um, and we've also had a very unique taxation structure for a long time uh, that impacted businesses. And we pay effectively four business taxes locally here in Portland, not to get into the boring details. But forever, those business taxes were calculated almost entirely on the backs of local employers. And out of state and out of region businesses we're not paying local taxes when they were doing business here, which should obviously be viewed as unfair fundamentally. If you do business here, you should pay taxes here. And if you're doing business elsewhere, you should not be paying taxes for those activities elsewhere. So effectively the, the tax change that we implemented 
was to correct this fundamental inequity in our business taxation structure. And it started with the premise that we should always favor the home team and that people that come and do business in our region from other places should pay taxes just like our businesses do. And then to exclude the business activities that are happening in other places that we were taxing. Sure. So this is really about course correcting on a technical ground. Sure. But here's what was so unique about it. A couple of things. One, it was fixing what was obviously unfair. But two, it was a win-win. It was a win for the business community that was going to see tax relief because our local governments were going to collect taxes on businesses from out of state and out of region. And because the state of Oregon had already done this, we knew full well that it was going to increase the revenue to local governments. So think about this. You're, you're trying to pass through legislation that both benefits your members because they get to keep more money, pay less taxes, and also benefits the governments that collect those taxes. And that's why we re really looked at this as a win-win for everybody. The issue was that it took the alignment of the city's government, the county's government, and we have a regional elected body called Metro. So three different bodies of governments working together to simultaneously realign their taxes. And so if you can imagine getting three governments to walk lockstep and do this in a sequence that made them stick together so that this was truly imp impactful was no, no easy task. But I can tell you the effect of this tax change starts started January 1st. We'll see the full sort of scope of it by the end of the year. But what it, it did more than just improve government budgets and return money to local employers, it also showed that when the business community and government work together on tax issues and find common ground, that everybody comes out looking great. Right. And this was non-controversial. It was positive. All three levels of government had unanimous votes in favor. And it proved that this doesn't have to be us versus them, that taxation issues can be bad for government, that it can be something we can all win at. So to me, it is a game changer more than just financially, but also showing the spirit of collaboration and cooperation that you go to any place in America right now and they'll say, that's what we want to see happen. We don't want to hear about what everybody's doing bad. Show me what you're doing right. Show me results. And I think this is exactly what it produced. That's a great example of it. And I, I hope listeners that, that you appreciate that because I eat this stuff up. I love local government. And it, it's interesting. I'd like to, that you use the word, the phrase course correction, because sometimes when you're thinking about this stuff, course correction should be something that is just easy to get done, but it, it never is. It's always it's always an uphill climb. Can you do me a favor? Because I studied, we were looking for a long time here in Buffalo at regional government as a as a possibility. And we studied Portland, I remember. Can you just for those of on the on the, the listening that don't know what that means, could you just give a, a quick overview of Portland's regional government? Yeah, you know, in some ways it strangely operates like you can imagine New York City, where in the late 1800s, five separate cities effectively came together under one unified government. And what was the city of Brooklyn became the borough of Brooklyn. And it was recognized as a county, not as its own municipality. And the government of New York City took over and consolidated. It's not what's happened here. That's not the same. It's not apples to apples. But 
what you have is the three metropolitan counties that make up what most people would come to define as Greater Portland came together a long time ago to do land use planning. And it, it goes back decades around making sure that the growth of the urban areas didn't threaten um, our natural resources or our agricultural economy that was really important to the success of the greater Willamette Valley. And so a regional government was established more or less to focus on coordination and planning between the three most robust urban counties. And that's what created Metro. And ever since Metro has been tasked with making sure that we are focusing our land use and our transportation planning in a really effective way so that governments are coordinated. It does have a council, an elected body that serves districts. There's a council president who is the Metro president who leads that body. And increasingly, as you can imagine, as the cities have grown within its boundaries, Metro has taken on and evolved in a significant way and now serves in more of a direct capacity in that it produces affordable housing. So it's a development partner. And it's been tasked with advancing our regional homeless services measure, which provides funding to homeless service providers that was enacted in 2020. So it's being asked to do more and more, especially as the region has grown so significantly, but it still plays the core function of planning and coordination amongst all the different municipalities and the county governments of the region. I suppose the way you phrase that, being asked to do more and more is better than a governmental body finding more and more to do. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that it's not doing that as well. However, <laughs> it, 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 it's, you know, whenever you see these, you, know, you look back only two decades ago, most people would have looked at Portland as a smaller, you know, mid-sized American city. And now it's a large and growing metropolitan center with multiple downtowns and city centers in the, in the area. And it continues to grow. We just added a sixth congressional district uh, in the metropolitan region, one of the few in the northern climates that has expanded its population. And so it, it, the ability and need to coordinate is much greater. It, it is common sense. And you look at places like the Bay Area that has, doesn't have a regional body, they struggle on this sort of cross-municipal, cross-county cooperation. Uh, when when cities grow this big, you you kind of need a, a a traffic cop to some degree and someone that can at least say, "Hey, let's all get in a room together and and focus on this issue and plan for the future." And and to some degree, that's what Metro does. And you know, it's, to their credit, it, it's not an easy job because the region is so diverse, from some of our most rural agricultural economies to our densest urban environments. And that's not easy to make people cooperate. They come from such disparate backgrounds. Well, let me go back to my question a little bit about, about so much going on and the role that the chamber has to play. So you've got your day-to-day, -day, you've got ice storms, you've got wildfires, you've got political, you've got all these things. And then you've got a growing economy too, rapidly growing economy. You have to keep your eye on the future, though, or else 10 years from now, you'll be answering, you'll be dealing with the same challenges you have today. How is the chamber involved in that conversation about the future of the region? Yeah, so I'll say this. We, one thing that I really like about, and this is this predates me, so I can't claim credit, but we've certainly added a few twists since I've been here. But this organization operates very effectively on two things, and that's economic data and voter sentiment data. So each year, 
we go into the field with a broad-based voter sentiment poll uh, that asks about the issues that are impacting the voters in the region. And then simultaneously, we use consultants to prepare what we call the state of the economy. So we have both the way voters feel and the economic trends that are driving our economy. And so we've got these two big data sets and it tells a, a story and the organization reacts to that story in, in a way that allows it to be way more proactive than, than I think most business advocacy entities that don't do this kind of work. Because it tells us that, hey, we may feel very strongly about this issue or that issue, but voters aren't even close to the way we feel about it. And there is not a shot of whatever it is that we've got, whatever brilliant idea, it, it's, it doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell. And so we have that level set between our own priorities and the way that the voters feel. And then we can transparently demonstrate through our economic work that, hey, this is where our economy is. And if we don't course correct, as we've talked about on this pain point or that problem, then we are going to face serious peril. And so we arm ourselves with this information and allows us to be extremely proactive. We also, I can say, have a political game that, that is second to none. And, and because truly, and chambers are all over the map on this one, we have an endorsement process, but we don't endorse unless we back up our position with money. And it, politics isn't all about money, but being able to communicate directly to voters on issues or on candidates is really important. And so it, it, it is a two-edged sword. It can have consequences that debilitate your ability to be a good advocate, but also can demonstrate your ability to advance serious policy and be able to tell a story to voters very directly. And so we have a significant expenditure on, on politics year on year, especially on the mid-year presidential cycles, which tend to be obviously more active locally. So when you combined our voter polling and data and voter sentiment, our economic data, and our ability to resource campaigns, it, it uh, provides for the ability to be on the tip of the sword for really key issues and direct public policy by really good tools, in, in my opinion. And so we're out ahead on everything is the way I look at it. And we're also in line with the way voters think. We don't really skew too far. So I say all that because that's the, that's the tools we use. And it's allowed us to be proactive in a way that I, I don't think I've seen amongst a lot of, of peers. And not, not this is not a critique of other chambers. I just know what we have here. And I've been in three different regions of the country. And it's really thoughtful. And it has to be because this is not a huge business community here. We don't have a lot of headquartered companies here. So we have to be really, really precise with how we spend member money. And if we're not giving them all the good strategic tools to make decisions, then, then that's on us for being poor stewards of their resources. But we've got that and allows us to be very proactive year in, year out. I can tell you one thing that I noticed that, that you talked about a difference between some other chambers is that is who you're polling is voters. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I think it's brilliant because, because yes, it's, you can pull the business community, but the business community doesn't make all the political decisions. So yeah, that that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. I say this because I think it's the most thing. And we are even, we do this here and it's about always driving the point home, get out of the echo chamber because 
the reality that most people face is not the reality that happens at the board level in most business associations. And if you're not informing yourself the way that people around you are feeling, and that's really what polling is, is how do you feel, then you're flying blind. And I just think it's it's apparent to me that, you know, we have strong feelings. We have to be champions. You have to be fired up. But you also have to temper your expectations. And if you're not asking voters how they feel and where they're headed, then, you know, you're going to be missing big time on some issues. And so I feel really strongly about that. You know, we do annual polling, but then anytime it's campaign season, we may be in the field on a number of sort of horse race polls that we will conduct as to get a lay of the land on some things. But uh, that this is it's frequent. It's often data driven and our members appreciate it. We have we have strong feelings about uh, you made the point about backing up your advocacy with with funding and money. But this is your interview, so we'll <laughs> we'll stick with you. <laughs> uh, you know what? Every word that's coming out of your mouth, I can hear your enthusiasm for what you do on a daily basis. What from your from your own perspective, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What makes you most excited about about what you're doing? Yeah, you know, there were some really dark times here. But I can say that the job allows me to be a positive influence for good. And every one of my team members believes that they're part of something bigger than themselves. And so do I now. I think we're one of the few civic organizations in this region that is calm, non-divisive, that focuses on rationality and trying to find common ground. And that feels really good. And when other things, other institutions around us have sort of fallen and not, not because they're bad or not because, you know, they're incapable or not smart, but we are durable and we have proven that we can be a resilient organization. And so when you ask me what gets me out of bed, it's like we made it through this really, really dark moment in this region's history just happened to be right after I got here, which I don't know, maybe that's coincidence or <laughs> I hope I didn't cause it, but point in time, point in fact is that um, we made it through some really, really hard times. And just now each of us very quietly, my senior team and I, we poke our heads up every day and we get to work on something that's fun. <laughs> and that starts to feel good when you're like, Hey, you know, before it was about just, kind of holding this community on your shoulders together like we do as a staff and you know plugging holes in, in these dark moments and now it's about all right let's let's move the ball forward let's get let's go on the offensive let's let's advance our agenda and know that we have the momentum we need so that gets me going because it feels good to be working on things that make me smile you know one of them I can talk about is uh you know we're advancing legislation that, that is you know presently in highly favorably considered that props up something similar to what the research triangle is in North Carolina. And we call it the state of sport because this is the unparalleled headquarters of the athletic outdoor team and rec economy. Sure. So building on those natural strengths is, is an obvious economic development play for the state. And it happens to really benefit this region. And that's fun. You know, you're, hey, it allows you to be creative in your advocacy work where you're doing something with government and with the private sector and with higher education. And so things like that just start to really get you going. And you're not talking about, hey, it's another day where downtown was, you know, trashed, right? I mean, that that has the ability to work on positive and ball moving 
agenda items is feels good. And so that gets me fucking money. It does. Yeah. When you talked about the tax piece before, when I was at the chamber, we had a similar advocacy initiative that involved pulling all kinds of pieces and lining up your, your chess pieces and sequence of events and things like that. And and we were successful in doing it. And it was, um, I don't know if you had the chance to, uh, to work with uh, Mick Fleming, used to be the head of ACCE. He was from Buffalo, so he came yep. and we were talking to him and we said, look, we just had this big victory. What do we do? What do we do now? How do we how do we tell people that this happened? And we were in the middle of it. And he said, well, first thing you do is you throw the victory party. <laughs> we were like, well, yeah, we were ready to move on to the next thing. But you're right. We should. We should celebrate this thing, you know. Totally. Yeah. So our favorite question that we ask is in the chamber world, there's lots of ideas and and many of them are very good ideas, but in the end, the best ideas are the ones that can get funding and support. (laughs) If you had a blank check as a leader in your community, you had a blank check, what would you spend that on? Yeah. You know, something that we did that was really unique in the wake of the murder of George Floyd was to ask the question, okay, so we're a business organization. So what's our, what's our, what's our lane here? Obviously, we have to have really hard conversations around race. We have to acknowledge, you know, what roles we've played in the greater challenges and inequities of our society. And and it it was decided, and I was really proud of our board at the time, that we're going to focus our efforts as a business organization on Black economics and to follow the voice of our Black board members. And it was a big deal for us because th- this state, you know, it gets this this kind of progressive veneer. And a lot of people would say, oh, this, you know, these these crazy woke people out in Oregon. And, and that's sort of true. But the way that we entered the nation as, as a state was to join the side of the union, but constitutionally excluded black people from the state. And hence why our demographics are so skewed. I and mean, it's oftentimes also called the whitest city and the whitest state in the nation. That's changed, largely speaking. But if you know the history and you study the history of the nation, you know, it, it, Oregon kind of looks good on paper that it it joined on the side of the union, but it had a really dirty secret. And that that has caused, I think, some of the darkest problems that we have in society here with just really being kind of having an original sin that's never been course corrected, as to keep using that word. Sure. Anyway, so the board agreed that it would spend at least the next three years funding a startup entity focused on Black economic prosperity. And so we founded um, the Black Business Association of Oregon at a sister entity that's called the National Association of Minority Contractors of Oregon. So we sort of incubated it in their institution. And our board did an all-in fundraising effort. So every board member had to chip in. We We led as the private sector. And then we used that initial seed funding an investment in that organization to attract philanthropy and the public sector. So it was a true triple P, right? We had the business community, we had philanthropy, and we had the public sector all diving into this entity. And what I have seen is the ability of that entity as it grows to be a, a really positive force for attracting thoughtful policy making. It's starting to have those conversations with elected leaders about, hey, you know, you can be about economic development and racial justice simultaneously, and here's how you do it. And I think making that investment is one of the best things that we've ever done as an organization. And I think it's been really good for the community. And I think that it's going to bear out 
positive change for black Portlanders and Oregonians, you know, for decades to come. It, it, it's not a quick fix. It's not a one-time only thing. This is a long game effort. And uh, I, I just, if I could pour all of our resources to stand that organization up, to focus on the success of our, the successes of our black owned businesses and to launch a thousand more and empower those businesses with the tools that they need to thrive and succeed. I think that this region and this state would be a model and it would be a model to say, Hey, in the place that, that is the whitest city in the whitest state, we have one of the most successful thriving black economies possible. And to correct the huge wealth gaps that exist between white Oregonians and black Oregonians that that would come naturally. And, and so I think for me, if I just had a magic wand, it can make money grow on trees. We would be pouring it into the black business association of Oregon to make sure that it thrives and expands and grows and supports black owned businesses throughout the state. That's incredible. So you've got a hot mic in front of you. Are there, is there a member too, that you'd like to give a shout out to for being a great member of the work they're doing in the community? Yeah. I, you know, I, it's, it's more of a grouping of, of members, obviously like any other place we have a travel yeah, destination marketing organization. It's called travel Portland here. And so I'm giving them a shout out and I, I'll tell you why. Obviously the reputation of Portland took a massive dent, both in, in, you know, political and sort of societal terms, but you know, from a hospitality standpoint, you're in the midst of the pandemic and you're suffering a reputational challenge. Sure. And I think that the work that our local destination marketing organization travel Portland does is so profound that they just deserve all the credit in the world. And I know that the hoteliers, the general managers, and all those who are in the hospitality industry have, have seen really hard times here since the pandemic and, and just deserve a big hug. Thanks. And a big shout out to travel Portland for their work and for taking care of so many of those, um, folks needs uh, they just they they deserve a lot of credit I, I say this one reason why is they took out an advertisement this is this is my favorite thing it was in 2021 as we were sort of coming out of the pandemic starting to poke our heads up full page ad in the new york times and which isn't really advisable a lot of times but because it's expensive real estate and it started with the it was a simple letter and it started with the line you've heard a lot about us recently but you haven't heard from us. And I just, it was an inspirational moment. And it was how we all felt here locally that people were writing the story about Portland, but not listening to Portland and hearing from us directly. And so it was a profound and thoughtful advertisement that was more than just a, you know, come visit us strategy. It was how do you change the narrative and they deserve credit for it. Yeah, that's way beyond crisis communications. That's a, that's a whole new world. <laughs> Hopefully, the uh, the folks that put that together are getting uh, teaching jobs at the university. <laughs> Me too. I hope they are. So, in your role as a leader in the community, part of what you need to do is inspire and motivate others on in you know your team, the board, the community. How do you stay inspired and motivated? Is there are there books, blogs? What's what's your go to? And yeah, being- it, I, I'd recommend a few, you know, anywhere I've gone, I'm a big fan of cities and history, and I read a lot of nonfiction. And there's some great, great stuff out there to, to tell the story about this part of the country that I don't think people realize 
is very, very rich and, and very just there are highs and lows and a couple of things that, that stick out. You know, most people know about Lewis and Clark, but not many people know about the the second journey out west here to Oregon, which uh, there's a book called Astoria, um, which talks about John Jacob Astor and his first venture out here and talk about the single most thrilling adventure story that I have ever read about the overland journey to eventually get to what is now greater Portland. And then secondly, a, a, a sea journey that, that occurs as well. So I just would recommend a story to folks. And if you want the, the, the real haps on this area and how it played into global politics, there's a great book out there, again, nonfiction called West of the Revolution. And it tells the story of the entire West Coast from the Aleutian Islands down to Cabo San Lucas while the war for independence started. Uh, and it is fascinating. Um, so those two books have been really key to my understanding of the region, the history, challenges, and the sufferings of the indigenous communities. It's been really fascinating to get myself brought up to speed. So those two books are key. And then, you know, we, my family, we we hold the poem Invictus close to our hearts. And if you don't know about Invictus, you, know, you can certainly look it up. But I think one thing uh, is true, you know, it's a four stanza um, poem, but yeah, the the author who uh, had his own life struggles really talks about the indomitability or the unconquerableness of the soul. And I, I think that is how I view Portland these days. Just like New York City went through its darkest days in the 70s and 80s, and no one could have thought that it would ever be what it is today right. in those dark decades. I think the same is true right now for Portlanders. They see what they see in front of their own two eyes and say, hey, we're, we're, we're down and out right now. We've had a tough time. They don't understand that cities go through this growth and they fade and then they rebound and regrow and regenerate and they're constantly in flux. And that's that's what I think about when I read that poem and because it's about being unconquered. And I certainly think that Portland's been dealt a lot of body shots, uh, but it's still standing and it's still moving forward. So Invictus, read it. Absolutely. I You know, throughout the, the two history books, throughout the interview here you've 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 tied i think it's kind of fascinating you've talked about things that happened hundreds of years ago and how they are affecting actually the work that you do on a daily basis today which is which is pretty which is pretty neat to think about it i'm going to start to wrap things up again i appreciate you being here if people want to find out more about the alliance and the work that you're doing where's the best place to send them portlandalliance.com check it right out to the, right to the website and i'll vouch for that i i actually read a lot of the newsroom is actually well put together so i learned an awful lot before doing this interview on uh, what's going on so andrew thank you again for joining us we very much appreciate you spending some time with us and sharing your insights you have so much going on so thank you again we even ran over our normal time today so we appreciate a few extra minutes with you wish you all kinds of success for you and your team and your board and the Portland community. I suppose it's still early enough in the year that we can say, I hope you have a fantastic 2023. To our listeners, make sure to reach out to your chamber today and get involved. Set up a coffee meeting, get some events on your calendar, join a committee, be involved in what's going on in your community. As Andrew said, you can see how powerful it is. If you're interested in learning how we can help you create a stronger relationship with your chamber of commerce, check out our website at www.momentumforbusinessgrowth.com. I also encourage you to connect with me, Craig Turner, on LinkedIn, where I post weekly advice, information, and guidance on how to make the most of your Chamber of Commerce investments. 
Again, if you'd like to connect with Andrew or find out more about the Portland Business Alliance or the region, visit www.portlandalliance.com. Thank you again, Andrew, for being here with us. Thank you to our listeners. And we'll see you soon with another episode of the It's All About Who You Know podcast. Take care. Bye.